Chapter 20, Part 2 of The Story of My Life and Work. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Kennedy. The Story of My Life and Work by Booker T. Washington. Chapter 20, National Negro Business League. Part 2. One of the most interesting articles about the first session of the League was contributed by Mr. Henry J. Barrymore to the Boston Transcript. It seems quite fairly the conclusion reached by most persons who attended the session of the League. New Orleans, New York and Akron on the one hand, the Negro Business Convention on the other. It is a roundabout logic but nevertheless a good one, that answers race antipathy with commercial success. Mr. J. H. Lewis got close to the root of things when he told that convention that the Negro problem was at bottom a mercantile problem, that the business world knows nothing of color, that human selfishness, the desire of every man to get money, would eventually banish prejudice. The almighty dollar is thoroughly colorblind. Money commands respect. Rare is the merchant or manufacturer who will refuse to shake hands with a hundred thousand dollars. But what hope has the Negro to succeed in business, said Mr. Lewis, if you can make a better article than anybody else and sell it cheaper than anybody else, you can command the markets of the world. Produce something that somebody else wants, whether it be a shoestring or a savings bank, and the purchaser or patron will not trouble himself to ask who the seller is. The same great economic law runs through every line of industry, whether it be farming, manufacturing, mercantile, or professional pursuits. Recognize this fundamental law of trade, add to it tact, good manners, a resolute will, a tireless capacity for work, and you will succeed in business. I have found in my own experience of 30 years in business that success and its conditions lie all around us, regardless of race or color. I believe that it is possible for any man with the proper stuff in him to make a success in business wherever he may be. The best and only capital necessary to begin with is simply honesty, industry, and common sense. This is good reasoning. It is also both practical and practicable. Results prove it. Mr. Booker T. Washington, in his travel through widely separated regions of the United States, found so many Negroes engaged in profitable commercial pursuits that he thought the time had come to put the Negro businessman on terms of mutual acquaintanceship and mutual helpfulness. Then, with that rare insight which characterizes the man's really indisputable genius, he conceived a big convention where the Negro business world should take to itself a voice that must at once impress the white man, and encourage the black man. 
The plan worked as per specification. Newspapers saw space in it, space and timeliness and vital human interest, with here and there a touch of the sensational. The business Negro is, therefore, get the public notice he so genuinely deserves. It will do us all good. For one, it did me good. I confess I went to the Parker Memorial with ill-stifled chuckles of expectant amusement. My chuckles ceased as I entered, for there was something impressive in the splendid show of bunting, something impressive too in the gravity of the colored audience, and something wonderfully earnest about the big banner at the back of the stage. That banner made plain, blunt use of the word Negro. So did the speakers. Racial pride is beginning to assert itself. These men have little to say of the colored people or of the Afro-American. They are outgrowing all that sort of affectation. They do, however, insist that the word Negro shall be written with a capital N. And why should they not? We capitalize the Indian, the Chinaman, the Filipino, shame to withhold so small an honor from the Negro. Another confession. I looked for the tall silk hat and the flashy suit of clothes. They were there, but not among the delegates. The silly, uneducated, shiftless Negro put his pay on his back. The business Negro put his pay in the bank. Here were men who had penetrated the real secret of success. Men who understood that the only sure basis of progress is economic. Men who would sacrifice today's indulgence for tomorrow's independence. Men who cared so much for social and educational advancement that they had come to despise the puerile strut and brag of the Negro dandy. Their faces surprised me as much as their clothes. There is a certain contemptible type of Caucasian who affects an equally contemptible inability to tell one Negro from another. At the Negro convention, he would have had no excuse for such downright stupidity. No white audience ever showed a more interesting variety of feature and continence. And yet for all that, I thought I could class those men by types. The cakewalk Negro, the old Confederate Colonel Negro, and the well-to-do merchant Negro. The cakewalk Negro, round-faced, shavy-headed, black as a coal scuttle, clad in rainbow-tinted cheap finery, came from Pleasant Street. No seat on the platform for him. The old Confederate Colonel Negro, gray mustache and imperial, gold-bowed spectacles and somber dress, this was the man from the South. The well-to-do merchant Negro hailed from nowhere in particular, and save for his color, was in no striking respect very different from white men of a similar rank in the world of trade. Sometimes the color was puzzling. A gentleman from Dixie was as white as I am. 
a handsome fellow he was, with a firm, stocky figure and beautifully chiseled features. Readers of Mr. Charles W. Chestnut's current series in the transcript would view that colored southerner with a keen ethnological interest. Which reminds me, a year or so ago I took lunch in Cleveland with Mr. Chestnut himself. That was before his books had called worldwide attention to his color. I had read his stories in the Atlantic and said, Tell me, Mr. Chestnut, how did you ever come to know the northern darky so well? Mr. Chestnut replied that he had rather unusual opportunities for observing the northern darky at close range. Six months later, I learned I had had the pleasure of luncheon with a cultured Negro, and that Mr. Chestnut had been bubbling with merriment ever since. I did not suspect it at the time. The business convention abounded with just such unrecognizable Negroes. Under the yellow glare of the evening lights, it was difficult, in many cases, to tell who was white and who was colored. In fact, I began to wonder whether I was white myself. The ear was as often deceived as the eye. Had I been blind, I would have said the speakers were white Southerners. With hardly any exception, their grammar was perfect and their pronunciation excellent. I had expected some marvelous Negro malapropism. I heard none. I came with the writer's usual hunger for color, but nothing could have been more hopelessly devoid of color than the colored Congress. Those black men had even to a considerable degree the common Caucasian foibles. Uniformly, when told they had only five minutes left, they consumed four minutes at least in explaining how sorry they were that there remained but five minutes. Uniformly, they wasted precious time in introducing their speeches with irrelevant stories. Uniformly, they put themselves at altogether unnecessary pains to explain that Boston was the grandest city in North America or anywhere else. It pleased me to see how brave the Negro could be and how patient. I waited for outbreaks of protest against white oppression and especially against recent white cruelty. I heard none. No one cried baby. The spirit of the whole occasion was distinctly hopeful. Regarding material advancement as the basis of every other sort of progress, the convention listened eagerly to every account of Negroes, once poor, who had built houses, bought land, opened places of independent business, and established solid bank accounts. Repeatedly it was pointed out that men born slaves had actually become rich, also that the total material progress of the Negro race had been accomplished in only 35 years. A happy augury for the future. Such utterances called out tumultuous cheers, mingled with the shrill rebel yell of the Southerners. Yet there was scarcely any tendency to indulge in racial self-laudation. More than once the speakers insisted that the commercial superiority of the white man must be frankly recognized and that the Negro must learn to copy 
the white man's methods. In general, the convention depreciated the Negro's desire to flatter the Negro. Far from that, let us look the conditions honestly and courageously in the face. Let us say the things that will help our people, whether those things are pleasant or otherwise. To be sure, a good many of those beneficial deliverances were sheer platitudes, but the Negro race is in need of platitudes. It is fortunately developing a relish for platitudes. It has reached that stage of moral and intellectual evolution where it has come to realize the vital importance of plain, homespun, brown-colored truths. It is laying the basis for its social philosophy by making sure of its axioms. Supposedly an enormous fund of emotional dynamics was walled in and roofed over at the Negro Convention. Nevertheless, the convention left the impression of a deliberative council seriously at work. Somebody says the best test of the earnestness and intelligence of an audience is to see how the audience acts when a little interruption occurs. The convention was put to that test. In the midst of Mr. William Lloyd Garrison's stirring address, the fire company, stationed just across the way, responded to an alarm. There was pandemonium in the street below, but not an eye left the speaker. Just once, the convention lost complete control of itself. A tall, slender youth had spoken some moments in a vein so modest that the chairman interrupted. Gentlemen, said he, the speaker hasn't much to say for himself, so I'm going to put in a word of my own. I can't help it. That man, gentlemen, that man there was in the front of the charge at San Juan. At that the ear seemed suddenly to be composed of equally active parts of handkerchiefs, hats, and hilarious chairs. The slender youth bowed acknowledgments and said his speech ought to take a military turn, but that he hesitated to say the thing he had in mind. It was not a pleasant thing. Say it out, yelled twenty voices. So he said it out. He was disappointed in Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt, said he, had slandered the Negro soldier, and there was really no braver soldier in the world. The Negro never flinched, never retreated. Why, gentlemen, way back in the old days, there was a Negro in the fight. And as for what Colonel Roosevelt says about Negro soldiers being dependent upon white officers, I'll tell you the truth. There wasn't any officer in control on San Juan Hill, or rather, every Negro private was a Negro captain. Then I knew what Stephen Crane meant by red yells. But this, as I say, was an isolated instance of rampant emotionalism. The uproar was not repeated. And think what the orderly, decorous, well-dressed, educated assemblage represents? Think of the change wrought by 35 years of Negro progress. Slaves, freedmen, laborers, capitalists, 
reformers, leaders of a struggling race, and all in scarcely more than a generation of time. Think of the millions who are still coming up, the millions who have in them the possibilities of success, the millions whom we must judge by the standards of the business convention and not by the standards of the criminal courts. The convention, now that it has come and gone, leaves a memory of heroic hopefulness and patience, not unmingled with pathos. It was significant and altogether appropriate that a Negro singer on Thursday evening should have sung the recessional with its double refrain, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet. After considering the matter carefully, it was decided to make the League a permanent organization that should meet annually. The second session was held in Chicago, Illinois, August 21st, 22nd, and 23rd, 1901, and was even more largely attended than was the first meeting. This meeting was made noteworthy in one respect by the result of the following telegram of congratulation from the late President of the United States. Canton, Ohio, August 22, 1901. President Booker T. Washington, Convention of the National Negro Business League. I have received your recent letter, but regret that I will be unable to accept your kind invitation to attend the meeting of the National Negro Business League to be held in Chicago this week. Please accept for yourself and those assembled my best wishes for the advancement and prosperity of your race. William McKinley The second meeting was free, as was the first one, from those unseemly and useless parliamentary wrangles which too often mar the character of public meetings among our people. The second meeting was composed, as was the first, of hard-headed, earnest men and women who met for a purpose and were determined that success should crown their efforts. The following program will give some idea of the scope and character of the Chicago meeting. Wednesday, August 21st, 10 a.m. Meeting called to order. Invocation. Address of welcome on behalf of the state, His Excellency Governor Richard Yates. Address of welcome on behalf of the City of Chicago, His Honorable Mayor Carter H. Harrison. Address of welcome on behalf of the colored businessman and woman of Chicago, Mr. W. F. Taylor. The President's Address. Appointment of Committees. A. Credentials. B. Resolutions and Organization. The Business League of Virginia. Giles B. Jackson, Richmond, Virginia. Business Features of the Order of True Reformers W. L. Taylor, Richmond, Virginia What the Twin City Business Association is Accomplishing J. A. Wilson, Kansas City, Missouri Can the Negro Succeed as a Businessman? Theodore W. Jones, Chicago, Illinois Evening Session, 8 p.m. The Negro Woman's Business Club of Chicago and Its Achievements Mrs. Alberta M. Smith, Chicago, Illinois. Merchandising. Charles Banks, Clarksdale, Mississippi. The grocery business. William Oscar Murphy, 
Atlanta, Georgia, the Hampton Building and Loan Association, Harris Barrett, Hampton, Virginia, Negro Business Enterprises of Mobile, A. N. Johnson, Mobile, Alabama, Thursday, August 22nd, 10 a.m., The Drug Business, Dr. Willis S. Sturz, Decatur, Alabama, Mistakes to be Avoided, S. R. Scottron, Brooklyn, New York, Merchant Tailoring, L. G. Wheeler, Chicago, Illinois, Colored Businesswoman of the East, Mrs. Dora A. Miller, Brooklyn, New York, The Game and Poultry Business, Walter P. Hall, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Dressmaking and Millinery, Mrs. Emma L. Pitts, Macon, Georgia, representing the Kansas City Coal and Feed Company and the Wyandotte Drug Company, I.F. Bradley, Kansas City, Kansas. No night session. A banquet was tendered the officers and delegates of the National Negro Business League by the citizens of Chicago, Thursday evening, August 22nd, at 1st Regiment Armory, 16th and Michigan Boulevard. Friday, August 23rd, 10 a.m., Carriage Manufacturing, F.V. Patterson, Greenfield, Ohio, Real Estate, J.C. Napier, Nashville, Tennessee, The Negro in Insurance, W.F. Graham, Richmond, Virginia, The Negro as a Silk Operative, T.W. Thurston, Fayetteville, North Carolina, The Negro Publishing House, R.H. Boyd, Nashville, Tennessee, Catering, C. H. Smiley, Chicago, Illinois, J. No. S. Trower, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Report of Officers. Report of Committee. A. Resolutions. B. Organization. Evening Session, 8 p.m. The Negro as a Manufacturer and Jobber. Anthony Overton, Kansas City, Kansas. The Logic of Business Development. T. Thomas Fortune. New York, New York. The Founding of a Negro City. S. L. Davis, Hobson City, Alabama. Isaiah T. Montgomery, Mound Bayou, Mississippi. The reception tendered the members of the League by the citizens of Chicago at Armory Hall brought 2,500 of the most intelligent and cultured colored people that it has ever been my privilege to meet in any part of the country. I am sure that no one could have come in contact with those attending the reception and have sat for three days' session of the League without being convinced that the race has made tremendous progress since the days of slavery. The present officers of the National Negro Business League elected at Chicago, August 23rd, are as follows. President Booker T. Washington, Tuskegee, Alabama. First Vice President, Giles B. Jackson, Richmond, Virginia. Second Vice President, Mrs. D. R. Robinson, St. Louis, Missouri. Third Vice President, Charles Banks, Clarksdale, Mississippi. Recording Secretary, Edward E. Cooper. Corresponding Secretary, Emmett J. Scott, Tuskegee, Alabama. Treasurer. Gilbert C. Harris, Boston, Massachusetts. Compiler, S. Lang Williams, 
Chicago, Illinois. Registrar, P.J. Smith, Jr., Boston, Massachusetts. Executive Committee, T. Thomas Fortune, Chairman, New York, Dr. S.B. Courtney, Boston, Massachusetts. T.W. Jones, Chicago. George E. Jones, Little Rock, Arkansas. N. T. Velver, Brighton, Pennsylvania. W. L. Taylor, Richmond, Virginia. T. A. Brown, San Francisco, California. J. C. Napier, Nashville, Tennessee. N. M. Louis, Pensacola, Florida. End of chapter 20, part 2.